2006, October 19th. Today is Lecture 21, Rotation and Revolution of the Earth. And we'll begin in just a moment. Okay, we want to finish up. We're, we're, we've been talking about the rise of modern astronomy. We've talked about last week, we saw we went from Greek astronomy up through Galileo, Kepler, and Newton. And this week we've been talking really about applications of Newton's laws. How do we go from first principles of motion and law of gravity to explain all of these things which were otherwise literally inexplicable beforehand? All the previous models of Ptolemy, even of Copernicus, weren't physical models. They were simply trying to describe the motions and they wanted to preserve appearances. But they never asked the, answered the question, why do they move the way they do? If you really want to know what the difference between Kepler and Newton was, is Kepler came up with a correct description of the motion, but it was Newton who answered why that description was correct, why it had to be that way and not something else. And in removing all the machinery of epicycles and equants and that, Newton achieved a great synthesis. It was a great simplification. Yeah, okay, when I express it mathematically, that doesn't look simpler at first sight, but it really is a lot simpler. And as we saw, it has tremendous predictive power. It not only explains phenomena we've been observing for thousands of years, it also has the ability to predict new phenomena. The return of Halley's Comet, the discovery of the planet Neptune. These are things which are utterly unheard of in the Aristotelian way of viewing of the world. The Aristotelian view of the world is a, is a world of serendipity. You, you discover things by accident. Things, well, stuff happens. And you never have an explanation for why. But in the Newtonian way of viewing the world, it turns out to be a very fruitful way of viewing the world because we can predict new phenomena and then go out and observe and confirm those phenomena or maybe find that those phenomena don't work that way. And then, then the, the explanations are not just a, an end in themselves. We, oh, we've solved the problem of planetary motions. We can go home and do something else. But they become a beginning. They become a tool for exploring the universe. And that's really what the, the real important aspect, the, the um, the real key aspect of the scientific revolution was. It wasn't an end in itself. It didn't end with the explanation of the planetary motions. That was just the beginning. And a lot of what we're going to see in the rest of the class is how that beginning unfolded. What do we know now? And get a better appreciation that when we talk about various effects or various interactions between planets, I'm not just making it up. I'm not just trying to come up with an explanation that looks like it explains what's going on, I'm appealing back to first principles. I have some feeling, imperfect to be sure, how the universe actually works, and we apply that. This was a tremendously liberating view of the world. Um, you know, the problem with world views like points of view is they're just opinions. But if you actually have a machinery for answering questions which is independent of one's personal opinion, that's very powerful. And it was very, very, very persuasive. It's notable that within a few years of the publication of Newton's Principia, as people began to understand it and they found that thousands of years got you nowhere but explanation of planetary motions, but Newton's law suddenly brought you into whole new fruitful territory and everywhere you turned you were discovering something new, that's where people are going to go. That's where they're going to concentrate their efforts. It happened very, very fast. The revolution was extremely quick. Within a century, the within less than a century, the Aristotelian view of the world was relegated to the history books, even though it had been the primary intellectual activity of people studying the world for 2,000 years. That's, that's, quite a, that's quite a change. But I've left dangling a couple of problems. 
Once you picked, once you bought into the whole Copernican view, once you saw the beautiful, compelling proof by Newton and Galileo and all the observational work, Kepler's laws, he said, of course, how, it could, it's simple, it's basic, we can, we can move forward from this. We still left unanswered the main objection to the Copernican principle. Can we actually prove that the Earth rotates around its axis and is revolving, orbiting around the sun? How do you prove that without an appeal to the very astronomical observations we've been trying to explain for 2,000 years? And that's what today's lecture is about, about how we actually prove directly the rotation and revolution of the Earth. So the key ideas of today are going to pre present direct demonstrations of the rotation of the Earth and direct demonstrations that the Earth revolves. And revolution in this case means orbit around the sun. So we're going to meet the two main demonstrations of the Earth's rotation around its axis, the Coriolis effect and the Foucault pendulum. These were dramatic demonstrations which, which were brought forward primarily in the 19th century that really showed, without an appeal to astronomical measurements, that the Earth actually rotated. The demonstration of the Earth's revolution, which was really the primary scientific objection, along with the impossibility of the Earth's rotation to the Earth moving around the sun, is embodied in the phenomenon of stellar parallaxes. Now, we've already met stellar parallaxes, but I want to now show the res resolution of that objection. Astronomers at the time of Copernicus, and perhaps even astronomers back in the time of Aristarchus of Samos, Remember, it was Aristarchus who proposed the first known heliocentric system back in the 3rd century BC. Certainly could make the objection that if the Earth was moving around the Sun, we should observe stellar parallaxes. Those parallaxes were not observed with the best techniques available to date, and from that they concluded that therefore the Earth was not moving. That's a valid objection, but it has, a, uh, has an escape clause. And the escape clause is maybe your measurements aren't good enough to see it. We always worry about that escape clause whenever you try to rule out something with a negative. So we'll see an example of that today. It's a theme that's going to repeat, reappear at various times when we predict phenomena, but we don't observe them, and you have to step back and say, is that because the phenomenon is wrong, and I've proven that it doesn't exist, or am I just simply incapable of measuring something that's more subtle than I thought? This is an example of the latter. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a legend that occurs that when, when Galileo abjured his errors and heresies before the Roman Inquisition, on signing his confession, he muttered under his breath in Italian, e pur si muove, which translated directly means, but still it moves. That's certainly apocryphal. Uh, uh, Galileo knew who he was up against, and if you're not going to mouth off to an authority like that. But the legend certainly has remained, and the question is, and still it moves, does it actually move? How do you actually prove that the Earth is moving? And what is the objection? What's the, what's the mental block to this? Well, the big mental block of the Aristotelian view of the world is that it's simply absurd to them that the Earth was revolving around the Sun in an orbit once a year or rotating around its axis. And their objection was not really that obtuse. It's actually a common sense notion. I mean, right now, do you feel that you're moving? No. You don't have any sensation of motion right now at all. So this is really one of the main objections to the heliocentric system, is we are not sensible of the emotion of the Earth, therefore it does not exist. Now, it's not a, we can get around that, we're going to explain that here today, but the question really boils down to, let's say I want to prove that the Earth is rotating on its axis, and I want to prove that it's orbiting around the Sun, 
And I want to do that without an appeal to observations in the heavens per se, meaning the daily rise and set of the sun, or the star, sun and moon and stars, or the annual motion of the sun around the sky. Because I can equally well explain those away from a fixed earth at the center and the stars and the sun are in motion. That was the whole problem for 2,000 years. What I want to do is I want to come up with an independent demonstration of that that does not make appeal to those basic observations. Now, underlying the objection, the Aristotelian objection, and even underlying the common sense objection to motions is what we'll refer to as the need for speed of the explanation. The motions we're talking about are remarkably fast. They require enormous speeds, much larger than we encounter in everyday life. And when you have to make a leap to something you do not encounter in everyday life, that becomes an intellectual barrier to you getting past that and getting into what's really going on. Let's take, for example, the problem of the rotation of the Earth. The circumference of the Earth in round numbers is about 40,000 kilometers. And it goes through one rotation in 24 hours. So if I'm sitting here on the equator, which is a great circle whose circumference is the circumference of the Earth, and I'm rotating, I'm moving towards the east, I'm going to go around that 40,000, I'm going to cover 40,000 kilometers in 24 hours. How fast do I have to be moving? Well, the speed I have to have is simply the distance I have to cover, 40,000 kilometers, divided by the time it takes me to cover it, 24 hours. So we do the math, and 40,000 kilometers divided by 24 hours is 1,670 kilometers per hour. Now, in this day and age of air travel, what's, what do you think is, in round numbers, the fastest speed that most of you in this room have taken an airplane have probably traveled? How fast do you think a typical commercial airliner moves? So? 500 yeah, about 500 miles per hour. Okay, we're going to do metric. Call it 600 kilometers an hour. But you didn't have commercial airliners in the second century BC. The fastest you could move is how far you could walk or run in a day. How fast the fastest runner could move. How fast the fastest horse could, could, could run. How fast the fastest ship could sail. That's measured in kilometers per hour, or maybe 10 kilometers per hour. So when you have to make a leap from 10 to 1,000, that's a factor of 1,000 bigger speed than anything you've ever encountered. Even the fastest wind most of us in this room have probably ever encountered, if it's 100 kilometers per hour, that's a pretty darn fast wind. I've experienced that kind of wind a couple times in my life, once down in South America where it was blowing the tent down. We had 100 kilometer an hour gusts at a little campground down in Patagonia. Okay? That's a huge wind, and that's still not close to the kind of speed I need on the equator. 1,670 kilometers per hour. But if you think that's bad, now contemplate the Earth orbiting or revolving around the sun. The well, approximated as a circle, to a first approximation, that's pretty good. It's got a radius of one astronomical unit, and it has to complete the circuit of the circumference in one year. Well, one astronomical unit is 150 million kilometers. The circumference is about approximately 2 pi times the radius, which is going to be 942 million kilometers. So in the course of the year, the sun going around its orbit will cover a little over 900 million kilometers of distance. It does it in 365 days. How fast does it need to be moving? Well, a year of 365 days is only 8,766 hours. Do the math. You have to be moving at 107,000 kilometers per hour to complete the circuit of the Earth around the sun. 
That's 30 kilometers for every second I've been standing here. 30 kilometers is more than enough distance to cross the entire distance of Franklin County. The Earth's center moves by the diameter of Franklin County every single second. That's an unimaginably fast speed, and it's still not the maximum speeds we encounter in astronomy. So I can ask the basic common sense question. How fast do you think you're going right now? Well, of course, that's going to depend a little bit on latitude. If you're on the equator, we already know that answer. It's 1,670 kilometers per hour. But as I move to northern latitudes, my path essentially is parallel to my parallel of latitude, hence the name parallel of latitude. The parallel of latitude is a small circle as we move towards the pole. It gets progressively bigger until it reaches maximum size at the equator, and then it shrinks again as I approach down to southern latitudes. For those of you who like to do the math, it basically goes like the... the um, it goes like the cosine of the latitude. So what's my speed of rotation? Well, at the equator, we already know that. It's 1,670 kilometers per hour. Up here in Columbus, we're at the 40th parallel of northern latitude. I can do the mathematics for that. And it turns out that we are right now moving 1,280 kilometers per hour towards the east. So we're moving that way. We're moving in the direction, general direction of the back of this classroom, and we're moving 1,280 kilometers per hour. So from the start of class to the end of class, we will have moved, with respect to the background stars, at least with respect to rotation, 1,280 kilometers. That's roughly an eastward motion. If I was to move that distance on the Earth, it would put me in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. At the Arctic Circle, up here at latitude 66 and a half degrees north, the speed is smaller. It's about 666 kilometers per hour. It just happens to work out that way. And as I get closer to the pole, the speed gets smaller. Because I have to cover a smaller circle in 24 hours, I'm obviously moving slower. Are you sensible of that motion? Do you feel like you're moving at 1,280 kilometers an hour? No. Because the trees are also moving that speed, the earth, the buildings are moving that speed, the ground is moving that speed. Heck, the air is moving that speed. And so it was really getting around this idea that everything, if, if you're in a situation where everything is moving around you at the same speed, your body is not going to sense that speed. Really, we sense speeds when we sense accelerations. We sense changes in speed, but that's a, that's a nuance. We don't feel like we're moving 1,280 kilometers per hour. So our common sense experience is that the Earth is standing still. In fact, we are hurtling along at 1,280 kilometers per hour to the east, plus there's an additional 30 kilometers per second around the sun. And we simply aren't sensible of it. Or are we? Maybe we have to look a little more carefully for changes in speed. This brings us forward to the 19th century, to a man named Gustav Coriolis, who in the year, he was a, he was a Swiss, uh, Swiss physicist, and he was working in the year 1835, and he noticed that there should be a deflection due to the Earth's rota rotation. And he stated the problem as follows. Or we can state his problem as follows. Put a cannon down on the equator and point it north fire a cannonball to the north. Now, at the instant that the cannonball leaves the mouth of the cannon down on the equator, it's moving towards the east with the rotation speed of the Earth of 1,670 kilometers per hour. As that cannonball moves north, it's moving to higher and higher northern latitudes. The speed of the Earth underneath becomes slower and slower because the circle that has to be gone around is getting smaller as we converge on the pole. So as it flies north, the speed of the Earth's rotation is less than it was when it left the equator behind. And so from an observer on the ground north of where the cannon was fired, 
it will see a little bit of eastward eastward motion. So for example, if I imagine a cannon that's powerful enough to fire a cannon from the equator to Columbus, when the cannonball leaves the equator, it's moving at 1,670 kilometers per hour to the east. Newton told us that an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. There's no force causing it to accelerate or decelerate east, so it should move at a constant speed. By the time it gets to Columbus, the speed of the Earth due to the rotation is only 1,280 kilometers a second. 1670 minus 1280 is 390. So the cannonball will be moving an extra 390 kilometers to the east. And so I could be standing there due north of the cannonball, and I can very safely say, yeah, I know you've got a cannon that can fire from the, from the equator straight to Columbus, fired on a ballistic trajectory. I'm going to stand there and go, no, you can't hit me. And I know because the projectile is going to deflect towards the east. And I'm going to know it's going to happen because that eastward deflection is a, is a consequence of the fact that I am standing on the surface of a rotating sphere, and I know a little bit of geometry, and Coriolis solved that same problem and said, that will give the appearance of a force acting upon the object to deflect it. I will have the illusion of a force, and we call it the Coriolis force. So I put my cannon down here on the equator. I fire it towards Columbus. But because the cannonball is moving faster to the east at the equator than it would be if it had departed from a high latitude, the actual path of the cannonball will be deflected towards the east. Similarly, if I'd fired it towards the south, it would deflect towards the south. Or if I was at southern latitudes and fired it, I would get a deflection in a different direction. So by firing it on a north-south line, the Earth turning out from underneath me, if you will, looks like it's moving slower, and I would be sensible of a deflection in its path. Now, on short ranges, you would never notice that sort of thing, right? But as long as, but when you start getting to the phase, you start becoming sensible of long-range traje ballistic trajectories on the Earth, or things that span many degrees of latitude, you suddenly become sensible of this deflection. There are a number of effects of the, of the Coriolis force. Projectiles will swerve towards the right at northern latitudes, but will swerve towards the left at southern latitudes when they're fired. So I get a rightward sense of deflection in the north and a leftward sense of deflection in the south. So for example, long-range artillery and guided missiles are designed today to correct for the Coriolis force. There's a very famous story that comes from the First World War. There was a battle fought between the British Navy and the German Navy off the Falkland Islands, which are way off the coast of Argentina in the South Atlantic Ocean. The British Navy left its ports up in, in Scapa Flow, up in, in, um, in the Orkneys, headed down, was chasing a, a German fleet that was trying to break its way into the Pacific to cause havoc among revenue uh, ships in there. They encountered them off the Falkland Islands, and of course they began hammering away at each other with their long-range ship gunnery. In the First World War, guns were capable of firing shells tens of miles. So they would start banging away at each other at long distance, and all of the British shells were landing in the wrong place, whereas the German shells were doing a pretty good job of, of whacking against the, the uh, British ships. Until someone realized that their automatic gun sight calculators on each of the guns were calibrated for the Northern Hemisphere Coriolis force, and they had to literally flip them over. They were overcompensating for the Northern Hemisphere force, but they were in the Southern Hemisphere at the Falkland Islands. Once they figured this out, they turned the gun sight calculators around, and suddenly they started hitting the German ships. Some of that story is disputed as apocryphal, but it's exactly the sort of thing you'd have to worry about. 
But the real place where we see the Coriolis force is the effect on weather systems. And this is fairly subtle, but it's very obviously uh, very obvious if you live in the right or wrong place, depending on how you look at it. Large cyclonic storms, large rotating um, low-pressure system storms in the northern hemisphere rotate counterclockwise because a storm is big enough to span multiple latitudes. It will see a different rotation speed of the Earth underneath it at northern than southern positions. And when you work these out, it works into a counterclockwise rotation in the north. Those low-pressure cyclonic storms, or the biggest of those, are called hurricanes. In the southern hemisphere, the analog of a cyclonic storm, a, hem a hurricane in the north, is called a tropical cyclone. Tropical cyclones, because we're now in the southern hemisphere, rotate clockwise in the southern hemisphere. Is that actually true? Sure is. There's a picture from the satellite of Hurricane Katrina in the Caribbean Ocean uh, making its way through landfall there around New Orleans. It's rotating in this direction. It's rotating counterclockwise. On the right-hand side, this picture shows Tropical Cyclone Fay, which did terrible amount of work up around Darwin, Australia in the year 2004. Notice the direction of the pinwheel is exactly opposite. So if you're in a southern hemisphere storm, you will be rotating clockwise with respect to the hurricane winds, and the hurricane force winds in the northern hemisphere are going to rotate counterclockwise. And what's happening is the Coriolis force. The Earth here is at southern latitudes at the southern extent of the storm. It sees a very fast rotation. The atmosphere is moving at this at a much faster speed than up in the north. The atmosphere is moving more slowly. And when you set your circulation pattern up there, you actually get a natural counterclockwise circulation pattern begins induced. That circulation is induced because the Earth is rotating at the rate it is. So part of the energy that gets tapped for these storms, a lot of the energy comes from water evaporation and things like that, but what gives them their rotating cyclonic nature is it's actually tapping into the rotation energy of the Earth due to the fact that we are on the surface of a rotating sphere. It's a very, very convincing demonstration of the rotation of the Earth. If you were on a flat Earth or if you were on a stationary spherical Earth, you wouldn't get a, you wouldn't get a circulation pattern. It could go any which way it wanted to. Of course, it's at this point I have to flush an urban legend. The Coriolis force works over large scales. It does not work over small scales. It does not work over, say, the scale of a tub or a sink or a toilet bowl. And therefore, you know, you cannot, you, you cannot, I don't know, James Bond story, uh, episode of The Simpsons, Bart versus Australia. If you flush a toilet in Australia, it does not f circle around down the hole in the opposite direction than a toilet flush in the northern hemisphere. And the reason is because the latitude difference between the front and back of the bowl is not very big, and so you're not going to get a big Coriolis force. Even if I took tremendous care, I made a great big giant round basin, filled it with water, let it settle so there was no residual flow in it at all. I mean, let's face it, when you fill it with a hose, you induce a circulation. I can induce that circulation in another direction, let it all settle down, sit for a day, and then pull the plug out in the bottom. Which way it starts to go is going to be largely dependent on maybe a little bit of remembrance of the direction in which it was filled. After all, I can design a toilet to flush left or flush right, put them anywhere. I know. <laughs> I've tried. I've been in the northern southern hemisphere. You know, it's really strange. I'm a physicist. I'm well trained. But you got to tell you, the first thing I did when I got to Santiago, Chile, the first time was I flushed it. Oh, what am I doing this for? It's true, it's really, it's an urban legend, but you know, we, we all think toilets do not flush clockwise in Australia, so, or any other place south of the equator, and you can't say, well, it happens on the equator, yeah, it doesn't all go straight, no, it doesn't happen. Coriolis force is a long range force, it works over big phenomena, it doesn't work over sinks, so, you know, it was a great Simpsons episode, but it doesn't work. 
Well, that's one way of doing it, but you have to be kind of sensible of long-range things. There's a much more immediate local demonstration of the rotation of the Earth, and that was due to a man by the name of Léon Foucault, who lived in the year 1850, who lived in the 1850s, who invented a device called the Foucault pendulum. What he did was he went inside. How did, anyone here been to Paris? How many of you have been to the Pantheon in Paris? It's this gigantic dome building. Yeah, I know. Everyone goes to the Louvre and the Senate and else like that, and you drink a lot of wine. But you don't go, most people don't go to the Pantheon because they charge a lot to get in. Um, I actually paid to get into the Pantheon. It's pretty cool. Uh, it's a large dome area. It's, where they, where they, it's the sort of temple to France's greatest scientists, and Napoleon's buried in the basement. And, um, he put a big pendulum inside the dome. It was 67 meters long with the plumb bob down in the main lobby of the of the uh, Pantheon, and he started it swinging north-south. And as you wait, over time, in a few hours, it's swinging northeast-southwest. Later, it's swinging east-west, and pretty soon, it swings back around again. If you've been down to Kosai or any of the big science museums, there's a Foucault pendulum in there. What is this about? Well, it was a really sensational demonstration. It was open to the public. People showed up. This change in direction of the speed is a reflection of the rotation of the Earth underneath the pendulum. In fact, it's a direct local demonstration of the rotation of the Earth. Here's some pictures. This is inside the Paris Pantheon. They've recently renovated the Pantheon and re-erected the pendulum. I didn't have a camera, so I got this one off the web. Here's a picture of the scale here for the um, pendulum bob shown when it's crossing through and is noted with the time. And of course, there's this rather nasty-looking JPEG up here, which shows a painting from the time of, of Leon, Gustave Leon Foucault demonstrating yeah, Leon Foucault demonstrating the, uh, his version of the pendulum in the Pantheon in 1851. Now, how does this work? Why does this actually work this way? Well, it's really hard to demonstrate this at middle latitude, so we're going to pick a special case where this is the easiest to see. We're going to go up to the North Pole, or the, you can do the South Pole, too. What you're going to do is you're going to take a big pendulum, and you're going to set it swinging so that the swing is in the direction of a particular star. So now we're going we're to tie ourselves to the celestial reference frame, and I'll pick a bright star like Betelgeuse. It's the bright star up in the constellation of Orion. Now, if, if an observer on Betelgeuse was, had a telescope and was looking back towards the Earth at my little pendulum on the North Pole, what the Betelgeusean would see is that the direction of the pendulum swing is constant. So I have a little pendulum here. And once again, we're going to abuse Marvin a little bit. This Marvin doll takes a real beating. That's why I have to buy a new one every couple of years. So I got a pendulum, and I said I'm swinging. And you're all sort of Betelgeusians. You're the fixed stars. And you see the direction of the swing not change. It's always moving back and forth towards you. But during that time that you see the swing, the Earth is going to rotate once on its axis every 24 hours. However, an observer standing at the North Pole, me in this case, holding on to Marvin while doing the swing, is slowly but surely rotating around Marvin because the Earth is rotating around every 24 hours. Of course, I'm not sensible of that rotation. So as I stand there seeing the swing, what I would see is the pendulum would appear to be rotating around once every 24 hours. It's 24 hours because I happen to be at the pole. So it starts out doing this. A little bit later, it's swinging this way. Six hours later, it'd be swinging this way. 12 hours later, we're back to the side-by-side -side swing. And so I would see this swing, if you will, precessing around slowly once every 24 hours. What's rotating, who's rotating, and who's doing the moving depends upon your point of view, upon your frame of reference. 
in the frame of reference of the rotating Earth, I see the pendulum swing around. In the fixed frame of reference of a person on the star Betelgeuse watching the Earth rotate, the pendulum is standing still and the Earth is rotating out from underneath it. So the basic cartoon we get is we're now going to take the perspective of the fixed stars. The pendulum keeps swinging towards Betelgeuse, but the Earth turns out from underneath the pendulum. Now, of course, crafting a Foucault pendulum is quite a trick because, of course, you've got to make certain that the, uh, the, the place where your string or your long wire that makes the long arm of the pendulum doesn't have any friction in it, so you get slowly dragged around as the mounting holds. You actually have to have a very clever multi-axis gimbal with very low friction bearings and things like that hooked up. And of course, over time, you've got a problem that there's air in the room and the, the pendulum would slowly slow down because it feels air drag. So actually, if you look really carefully, go to COSI sometime. They've got a nice Foucault pendulum in their lobby. There's this thing, the Foucault pendulum is a gigantic metal ball and it, it passes over this kind of metal copper looking spot that's in the middle of the swing and it goes over and knocks the peg. I think they've got the knock the peg down kind there. Uh, I'll go there a lot, but I just never pay attention to the Foucault pendulum that much. That little round copper disc thing is an electromagnet that gives the pendulum a little bit of a tug to keep it moving to make up for the air friction. There's just practical aspects to the design of a Foucault pendulum. Now the pole is a very easy place to do the demonstration. It's simple, it makes its way around, it precesses around once every 24 hours. At middle latitudes, it's more complicated to demonstrate. That's usually left for a junior level classical physics problem because it involves things like torques and rotating reference frames. But the basic principle remains. Essentially, the Earth is turning out from underneath the pendulum as the Earth rotates, and we get this effect that as I stand on the Earth from my frame of reference, I see the pendulum rotate around. If I measure that rate of, rate of precession and I know my latitude, I can directly back out the rotation rate of the Earth without ever once, by the way, having to look at the sky. That's the whole point. Both the Coriolis force, and except for the fact that I played this game at the pole where I put the, the pendulum move with respect to the stars, I really haven't had to invoke rising and setting in the east. I haven't had to invoke anything like that to say the Earth is rotating. I've watched the effects, the physical effects, of choosing as my platform the surface of a rotating sphere. There's physics that occurs in the surface of rotating spheres that does not occur on a stationary sphere. And therefore, those let me decide whether I'm standing still or in motion. If I look at the sky, I can equally well explain it by the Earth being stationary and the sky moving. I have no way to distinguish those two points of view without these additional demonstrations. And what's interesting, you'll notice these demonstrations occurred in the middle of the 19th century. Newtonian physics had been pretty much the game and only game in town for two centuries. So it was a very sufficiently compelling idea that even absent the direct proofs, people still bought into it. But it takes care of rotation. What about the orbit of the Earth around the sun, this revolution of the Earth? Well, as the Earth orbits the Sun, of course, what's going to happen is I'm going to change my perspective on the universe by two astronomical units from one side of the orbit to another. If I have a nearby star, it will appear to shift position with respect to much more distant background stars as I swing from one side of the Earth's orbit to another. This apparent shift is what we call the stellar parallax. This should all be reviewed since we talked about this when we talked about Copernicus. This was not observable in Copernicus's time. People tried to observe it. Tycho Brahe spent a great deal of time trying to observe it, and it, his failure to observe it convinced him that the Earth was not in motion, that the Earth had to be stationary at the center of the, solar, of the universe. 
Now, the reason why they didn't see it was not that their technology wasn't, was, was that not that it wasn't there, but that their technology wasn't good enough. It wasn't fine enough with naked eye techniques. The reason turns out to be that the stars are too far away to have a measurable parallax with naked eye techniques. You need to have a telescope to see the tiny parallaxes involved. And that was the explanation given by Copernicus and everyone else saying, well, you can't see it because the stars are much further away than you think. But remember, at the time of Copernicus, most people thought the stars were just beyond the orbit of Saturn. So therefore, the parallax should have been observable. And that was the argument that was used. And so the, but it's a negative argument. The only way to solve it is to improve your technology. So again, this is a picture showing what the effect is. We have a, the Earth orbiting around the sun, the nearby star, and a distant screen of background stars. In June, this nearby star appears to be seen projected nearby these two red and blue stars here I've put in the background. Six months later in December, I look at that star, and it's projected over here. So it appears to move back and forth as, I, as the Earth moves around in its orbit. Furthermore, the, the more nearby a star it is, the larger the parallax. So we can draw this parallax triangle from the previous picture and compare that to a more distant star. I stretch the triangle out. Therefore, the parallactic angle, this angle here inside the triangle there, gets smaller and smaller. As the distance gets larger, I stretch that triangle out. So if the stars are very far away, the further they get, the smaller the angle of this stellar parallax. Eventually, it will drop below your visibility. The smallest angle you can discern with naked eye instruments is about one minute of arc, about one sixtieth of a degree. And that was the best that Tycho Brahe could do. In fact, it's the best anybody can do without a telescope. So how big is this, this going to be? Well, before we do that, I want to show what it's going to look like. The effect of parallax, as seen from a nearby star. Of course, QuickTime never wakes up when you want it to. Okay, maybe not. I'm not going to ask. Okay, where are we? So why couldn't you see parallax? Well, the smallest you can see is about an arc minute, but it turns out, jumping ahead to the answer, the stars are just a whole lot further away than people thought. They're not just beyond the orbit of Saturn. They're way beyond the orbit of Saturn. The near, one of the nearest stars, the nearest bright naked eye stars, is Alpha Centauri. It's at a distance of about 4.3 light years, which gives it a parallax angle of basically 76 one-hundredths of an arc second. Well, remember that the largest, smallest angle you can see with the eye is one arc minute, which is 60 arc seconds. This is something like 80 times or more big, smaller than you can possibly see with the naked eye. You simply can't measure it. And that's the nearest star. For every other star, that simply gets worse. In fact, parallax wasn't observed until finally in the year 1837 using telescopic techniques by this guy, Friedrich Wilhelm Bessel, who observed a star, not Alpha Centauri, which is not visible from northern hemispheres, but 61 Cygni, a star so faint, actually it barely is visible to the naked eye. It needs a telescope to see it. And he measured a parallax of three-tenths of a second of arc. So it's a terribly tiny little number. That's basically about one one-hundred-and-eightieth in round numbers of the smallest angle you can view with the naked eye. So in order to measure parallaxes, you've got to get really, really, really tiny angles. You've got to have very good telescopes. Simple modern truth. We've only still, even with modern satellite technologies, 
we're barely measuring parallaxes of tens of thousands of stars, and that's only been in the last decade. The stars are so far away, parallax is really, really hard to see. It takes really, really detailed techniques. The distance of 61 Cygni is 10 light years. That's barely out of the backyard. So what's going on here? Well, in many ways, like I've, I've implied at the beginning of lecture, this is kind of the cosmic anticlimax. Uh, the first firm observation, the real physical proof that the Earth rotates on its axis, that the Earth orbits around, if you will, revolves around the Sun, did not come until more than two centuries after the really the end of the Copernican Revolution, when, when the final victory of Newton and the publication of the Principia. It took another 200 years. By then, the use of the telescope, various revolutions of thought, showed the manifest truth of the Newtonian view of the world. It was a way of progressing forward. And so when these proofs finally did come, people thought they were pretty cool, but they didn't need them anymore. But it's an interesting reminder that sometimes ideas can be extremely compelling, that we're willing to move forward with them, even if some of the fundamental proofs are still not available to us technologically, in large measure because we know those proofs may be just around the next corner, the next state of the art, the next version of the experiment that we're doing. Unless we keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and we never see the phenomenon. We refine, we push, make things better, and we never see it. That's when people start stepping back and saying, something's wrong. Doesn't always happen. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But we should keep an eye out at that sometimes in the things we're looking at, especially when we talk about things in the heavens. And we'll see that as the class goes on. No questions? I'll see you all tomorrow at the quiz.